Hi, Nate Duncan here. We periodically are going to take the opportunity on this feed to share other content that we think is worthy. So I want to introduce you to a podcast called Real Good. Their first episode dropped into podcast feeds in that fateful summer of 2020. The world has changed a lot since then, but their mission has remained the same. Every season, every episode, they strive to show you that while the world is an imperfect place, there are people out there trying to make it better. Their fourth season is out now, and here's an episode from that season with WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert. She shares how she approached the development of a landmark agreement to improve player pay and benefits. And our hosts and guests dive into what needs to change in order for women pro athletes to be celebrated in the way they deserve. If you like what you heard, go listen and subscribe to Real Good wherever you get your podcasts. This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers. I'm Faith Saley. Our first episode dropped into your podcast feeds in the summer of 2020. The world has changed immeasurably since then, but our mission has remained the same. Every season, every episode, we've strived to show you that while our world is an imperfect place, there are people out there trying to make it better. We all know the old adage, baby steps still move you forward. But in the fight for equality, we're far behind where we need to be. So forget baby steps. Sometimes big leaps are what's necessary for initiating real lasting progress. And nobody understands that better than today's guest, Commissioner of the WNBA, Kathy Engelbert. It's been 50 years since Title IX was passed in 1972, which completely changed the game. Pun intended. Okay. You can put me on the bench for that joke, but it is hard to argue that Title IX did anything less than revolutionize women's sports and dramatically expand opportunity for female athletes. Yet in 2022, women still aren't paid the same as their male counterparts in professional sports. This, of course, reflects an even bigger issue in our society. Women continually have to ask for equal treatment in almost every aspect of their lives, from the workplace to pro sports. But when demands for better are met with allyship and coalition building, a world of possibility opens up. Beyond equal pay, we have an opportunity to work together to reshape the institutions that inform how women see themselves, how all of us see women. So when Kathy Engelbert stepped into her role as commissioner, she jumped in headfirst, formulating a new agreement for player pay and benefits within her first few months on the job. And when players demanded better, she listened. Greg, can I ask you what your favorite WNBA team is? Or is that like asking you to choose a favorite child? I'm in Minnesota, the Minnesota Lynx. Are you kidding? We had a really exciting season here, although we didn't make the playoffs. Um, but it was uh, Sylvia Fowles, one of our premier players uh, in the franchise's history. Uh, Sylvia is a multiple WNBA champion, uh, multiple MVP um, player who's just been such an icon um, in the league. This was her last season. Um, so Sylvia was on a, you know, it was called Sylvia's final ride. So in every city she went where it was her last game, they presented her with gifts and just sort of oh, showered her man. with appreciation. Yes, yeah, so it was cool. And we got to a lot of games this year. My wife and I love going to the games and um, we went to a ton of games. And uh, when my kids were in town, the four of us went to Sylvia's last home game here in Minnesota. So that was a big thrill. Um, so the Lynx are my favorite team, but I just love the WNBA. Such great do you basketball. Know how cool, do you know how cool it would be if many, many men in America could answer that question and then tell me about their favorite player like you did? Like, yeah. that's what we want, right? Not, yes. not just girls and women, but our, our whole country to to put eyes on this. Yeah, that's what support looks like, right? Like it just, you know, when you can have an appreciation for the way these athletes um, play the game and the dedication and hard work that they put in, it's no less than what the men put in. Hell no. Yeah, right. And I just, I just think the the, the basketball is just great basketball. I mean, the the player movement and the way they move the ball, and they just have a a really cerebral way in which they they play the game. But it's it's no less exciting and. Uh, the games are just uh, in incredible. So we enjoy it a lot. You know, a while back, you shared with me some some nugget about how lots of women in leadership positions in business played sports. 
you know, I, uh, like team sports. When when uh, uh, we should talk to Kathy about that because Kathy uh, Engelbert, who is our guest today, the commissioner of the WNBA, commissioner Commissioner, yep. commissioner Engelbert, um, will talk about that because. Well, I got some stats for you. Eighty percent. Eighty percent. This was oh, the stat. You stats. got some stats. Hey, I got for some me. stats. I got. I did my homework <laughs> for this first. one. I actually did some homework <laughs> on this one. Eighty percent of the women in leadership played some uh, play the sport. Um, Hold on. Hold on. I think I got. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Is it, is yes. That, and did you fact check? Am I right? Am I yeah, right? Well, let's see. I have a study that says among senior business women in the C-suite today, ninety-four percent. There it is. Played sports and over half played at the university level. There it is. And then listen to this. This is interesting. Of of four hundred women in one survey, seventy five percent said that a candidate's background in sports positively influenced their decision to hire them. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you think of all the the lessons of leadership and um, discipline and all that comes with it. I mean, it's just such collaboration, a collaboration, right? um, uh, but also this notion of just you know seeing yourself in leadership roles and seeing you know women seeing other women in leadership roles and it's just and, and men seeing women in leadership roles. Yeah, and yeah. That's what I love about it. That's why I love going to the game so much is because you see not only the the players um, on the floor who are demonstrating incredible, you know, competitive spirit and leadership, but you've got coaches, you've got the officials, you've got, you know, reported like women playing all of these really important roles that you don't often see them in. Um, and it's great. And you see so many little girls out there, you know, who are just so wide eyed about the whole experience. Mm. And it redefines, I, I feel like it redefines aggression. It takes Correct. the negativity out of that word. I remember when I played competitive soccer and my coach used to say, I love how aggressive you are out there. And as an 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old girl, I, I took that word in and yes. thought, yeah, yeah, I am aggressive. And yeah. I'm, I'm like, I make no apologies. Yeah. And it, it, there, there was a time, and it probably there's still a residue of it, when you know, you, you thought of a girl as being aggressive was not a positive thing. Um, I think it you, still happens. And, and when you associate it with men, it's very much a positive, particularly in the workplace environment. And so, you know, we're, we're I, the WNBA and, and so many efforts like this and so many of the guests that we've had on this season um, are redefining um, what that looks like to be assertive and standing up for yourself and, and leaning into leadership and leaning into their superpower. And I think the WNBA is such a great example of that. It's wonderful. Since we are talking about sports, um, it, this is a more of a, a figurative question, but who, who have been the coaches in your life? Because I suspect that you Ooh. coach people. Yes. But like who have been, I know you, you know, quite literally you said you played baseball, you played basketball, but like who yeah. are your, who are your coaches? You know, my coaches, um, have typically been uh, people who at some point in my career, um, you know, have, have played the role of, you call it coach, I call it sponsor in many ways. You know, we talk, we've talked a lot on this podcast about sponsorship and why that's so important because the people I consider coaches are the ones who advocate for me when I'm not in the room um, and will also, you know, tell me the things that are hard for me to hear. Um, I've had a number of people I think about, um, you know, a gentleman, he's the president of the uh, Executive Leadership Council, which I talked about. His name is Michael Heider. Um, he's been an incredible uh, coach for me and, and somebody I, I lean on to like, you know, if I have questions or if I've, you know, I've done something, I have a really important initiative that I need to navigate, like I, I will pick up the phone and call him. And, um, you know, I've just had a number of executives. I think of, you know, a, a former a colleague of mine at Target, her name is Laisha Ward, um, plays that role um, for me. So I've got a number of uh, people, Jerry DeVard, um, who's a former executive uh, at Citibank and others um, who very early in my career, um, you know, uh, as a junior executive, she was somebody I looked up to. And so, so uh, you know, a number of my coaches, Faith, are women, uh, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. And I would say more often than not, um, uh, I've had a, a number of women coaches in my life. And those are a couple of people that I would consider coaches, you know, that I call upon. What is what is something that someone has told you, one of these people that you said was hard to hear? You know, early, I, I think one of the things um, 
a good example. Very, very early in my career, I had this, um, I've always considered myself more of a leader than a manager. And early in my career, like I hated sweating the details. Like I always considered myself sort of this big conceptual visionary thinker. And I just remember, I think it was Jerry DeVard actually, and, um, um, who said to me like the, you know, at your level, the details are what will, will hold you back. Like, like not being able to manage the, the, the details at this level. And I understand it's not what you, but you've got to be able to manage it. I understand it's not your strong suit. And ultimately, once you've made some progress, you'll be able to delegate that stuff and pass it on. Um, but make sure that you're detail oriented. And it was that, you know, so from that point on, I made it a point to talk about myself as a detail oriented person. You know, like you can actually you fully shape. embraced it. Well, yeah. And I think you can shape. I think it's an important lesson for all of us, right? When you get some feedback like that, because part of your success, um, I'll call it your success this is a Carla Harris phrase, but your success equation is what are the adjectives that you want people to say about you? And, you know, you have to actually role model those things. So if you're not detail oriented, I started talking about myself as a person who's detail oriented. <laughs> you know, if that was the thing that could potentially that makes trip me so up, so much sense. Like it was convincing myself that I was, and so yeah. I, I created that narrative about myself. That ultimately, that's how I continued to move forward in my career. It's like I was somebody who paid attention to the details and how, you know, how detail oriented I was on anything that I was involved in. Like I just sort of took it and reshaped it and claimed it. You know, I I. I'm going to use that. And Greg, we have WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert joining us now. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Faith, it's great to be here. I am so excited to meet you for, for the first time. And, and I think you and Greg can call each other friends, right? Absolutely. We've been on the road together. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, I interrupted you before we started recording. You two were already in the weeds about the semifinals. <laughs> we're, we're talking to you right now, Kathy, during the semifinals for the WNBA 2022, right? Yes. Yes. So we're... Uh, Starting our finals, game one um, on Sunday, September 11th. But uh, yeah, we're getting ready to uh, have a game five, a deciding game tonight uh, with uh, Chicago and Connecticut. I love the slogan, which is, I just looked on Twitter. It's more than what you're ready for. It's so good. <laughs> yes. That's so good. And the games have been amazing too. I mean, seriously, like um, that's that um, the, the game between uh, Seattle and Las Vegas, where, you know, what was it, Kathy? Fact check me. That was it like six points scored in the last three seconds or something. <gasps> first time it's a Sue Bird hits a three to put them up to Vegas comes down. Um, Asia Wilson, you know, hits the bucket to send the game. I mean, how just incredible. I mean, the games have just been been simply amazing. Yeah. And Sue in her last season, Faith, you know, hits that three. Sue, with, Sue Bird we're talking about, with, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. With yes. Point, after 20 years in the league with 0.8 seconds left, but then the uh, aces come down and make a layup, send it to overtime and win in overtime. So, yeah, they've, they've really been exciting games. And um, lots of view viewership, lots of fans in seats. So this is all what we're trying to build here. Kathy, where do you actually watch games? Are, are you there in person? I, and I go to a lot of games. Um, so I was Tuesday night. I was in Connecticut for the Connecticut-Chicago game. I handed but out you, our six. I, I got to yeah. interrupt. You can't really root, right? Like, I can't. what do you do? Do you just do you get excited at every single root play? For a good game. Oh, for I, a good game. I so yeah. want to clap when I, someone makes a great play, but then I'd be yeah. clapping for one side or the other. So no, I, I, I sit there. I do say wow a lot. Um, you know, I say wow for both teams, and I mean the level of play, as Greg said, is just I can't be more pleased with the level that these players are playing at. It's just incredible basketball. Kathy, I have to tell you, um, I, I was recently at the airport and my, my son, who's a baseball fanatic, has a hat that has all the MLB logos on it. And a, a man who was dressed as a priest, indeed he was a priest, started talking to him about his hat. And he comes over to me, it turns out he's a bishop, 
And, and I said, what's your team? And he said, oh, ever since I became a priest, I can't have a team. I, I, I root for them all. So I kind of think of you in the same way. You're the commissioner. You're the bishop of the WNBA. <laughs> yes, I've never been called that. But yes, right. uh, that, uh, that's exactly right. But you have to, you know, hope for uh, great, compelling content entertainment. And we're a real sports and media entertainment property. So uh, you just hope for, for the players to play at their highest level. And that's what they're delivering. When I was preparing for this interview, I saw this great headline from ESPN that said, U.S. Bank agrees to multi-year relationship with WNBA, which seemed like a very exciting wedding announcement, like multi-year relationship. So, <laughs> so I want to say mazel tov to, to, to you all. Um, and, and U.S. Bank is, is the official bank of the WNBA, yes. making a commitment Proudly. there. Proudly. Yeah. Um, so, so we're going to return to that relationship later, but, but for now I want to focus on you, Kathy. Um, what kind of kid were you? Well, I grew up one of eight kids. I have five <gasps> brothers, three older brothers, two younger. Uh, so yeah, I grew up in a big household. Whoa. Yeah. Lots of kids and, um, very competitive household. All my brothers played basketball and soccer and baseball and some played tennis and I actually played tennis basketball and lacrosse at, at the high school level and then uh basketball and lacrosse in college so I got recruited for lacrosse little known fact I was a walk-on for basketball for a, huh. for a first year head coach at Lehigh University in Bethlehem PA uh first year coach was now Naismith Hall of Fame coach Muffet McGraw who went on to great success at Notre Dame two national championships and now leading a league with a lot of Notre Dame players in it. So it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's kind of like a, a circular thing. Were you nervous when you walked on to try out for Lehigh? Um, That's D- <laughs> D1, everybody. Well, uh, Muffet now tells the story that she almost cut me my first day, <laughs> first day of tryouts because I was a tennis player. And she said, I showed up with the little socks with the balls on it and didn't look, <laughs> didn't, didn't look like a basketball didn't look player. Like a baller. Didn't look yeah. like a baller. That and I say, you know, Muffet, if you had cut me, I'd never be the commissioner of the WNBA. So thank you for not cutting me. <laughs> yeah. I hope you still have some socks with balls on them. That, that, I mean, that makes you a double baller, right? That's right. I, I like you that. Wear those just to, I think you should just wear those for the symbolism alone. Yeah, like, maybe I'll wear it to work. the finals. <laughs> I think you should. I think you should. So when when you were growing up, what was – I mean, your your dad was a, was a draft pick for the NBA, right? Yeah, my fa- father was drafted in 1957 by the Detroit Pistons coming out of a – big college basketball program at the time, St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, where Jack Ramsey, now Naismith Hall of Fame coach, Dr. Jack was his coach. So yeah, a little bit of basketball DNA growing up. And we had this little rickety wooden backboard in the backyard where we parked the cars. My parents would move the cars and we'd play till usually at a curfew of like 9 p.m. (laughs) Yeah, the neighbors Mm. started complaining about us, you know, bouncing basketballs out there to all hours. And um, yeah, it was a big sports, grew up just playing everything, street hockey, wiffle ball, soccer, you know, uh, basketball, all in the backyard, not formally until I got to seventh and eighth grade, but, you know, all in the backyard. <laughs> so so it sounds like you, you grew up in a family environment where, uh, you know, a, a, a sporty, aggressive, competitive girl was, was uh, normal. That was all normalized. In the bigger world... Did you get a sense as a young athlete that that women's sports were were considered second tier? Yeah, I mean, remember, I grew up playing in the 70s into the 80s when, you know, Title IX was just taking hold. And now, amazingly, we're celebrating the 50th year. And I am a product of Title IX because I'm not sure I would have played at a Division I level two sports if it wasn't for Title IX. And and quite frankly, there wasn't even soccer for girls when I grew up. That came, you know, later on after I was already, you know, in college. So, um, at least in, I grew up in Southern New Jersey, right near Philadelphia. So yeah, I, you know, I, I'm just so pleased to have had the upbringing I had with the big family and the brothers, because I was like the fifth of eight middle girl, but three older brothers. And I was their fourth in everything. And, um, so then when I went to Lehigh, it was four to one male to females at Lehigh when I got on campus in 1982, and but that wasn't unusual for me because I had grown up with five brothers, you know, so nothing. I never felt, you know, the any bias because I was a female playing sports or anything. Lehigh, you know, was uh, a great place to play uh, both two sports. You can't even play those two sports back to back uh, in today's day and age. But back then you could. 
And um, so I, I didn't really feel it, but I think that's because of my upbringing. And I was just like, and then I joined a very male dominated business um, environment coming out in 1986, getting a job in public accounting for Deloitte, where I stayed for 33 years. And, you know, but Deloitte really started. And you were the first female CEO. Yeah. I'll say it if you're not going <laughs> to. Well, I was going to say back in the early 90s, Deloitte started this thing called the advancement and retention of women. And it wasn't because they were having problems advancing. It was the retention. Um, yes. You know, women were leaving in their 30s, um, you know, and we were hiring 50-50 men and women, but women would then leave you know, at, at critical times when they're thinking of family. And I actually resigned once thinking when I was pregnant with my first child, thinking I couldn't do it all. And and thankfully, you know, I had some good advice to stay with the firm and ended up, as, as you just mentioned, as the uh, CEO in 2015. What did you, Greg and I were talking about uh, coaches, people, you know, either literal sports coaches or people who figure as coaches in our lives. And I wonder who has coached you uh, going back to to Muffet McGraw starting there. What did you learn from her besides, you know, the power of an awesomely alliterative name? Well, and, and Muffet back is one of the most competitive people you'll ever meet, doesn't like to lose. But what I learned, at least from Muffet, is like you have to be your best in the ordinary moments like practice and when you're on the foul line in practice and you know, because then you'll be great in the extraordinary ones. And that, like, I've kept Details. with me my whole life, like the ordinary moments, the practice, the preparation, any business meeting now for, you know, the WNBA finals coming up and everything we've dealt with over the past two and a half years since I got here three years ago. Yeah, it's all about preparation and making sure you're prepared for what's going to be thrown at you. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what Muffet taught me. And then I'd say over the course of my career at Deloitte, you know, over three decades, it was a lot of sponsorship and mentorship. So I would say it was a spon- sponsorship that was the most important. And Greg knows this in his organization. Um, that was the most important to me. And my sponsors were like behind the scenes, people in position saying, we've got to get Kathy, you know, P&L exposure. She's got the technical, she's got the big clients. So but not because they thought I was going to be the CEO someday, but they saw some potential in me. And that's what sponsorship's all about, you know, taking someone under your wing without them even knowing it. And that's I was a, a great beneficiary of that because of the culture at Deloitte. You know how much I love this. I love this faith. The, the, the power of sponsorship is, you know, when, when people are actually willing to put their own personal capital on the line for you. And, you know, every single one of us who's worked in these environments know that every decision about your career and your advancement in a a corporation happens when you're not in the room. And so if you don't have someone in that room advocating for you, um, it it simply won't happen. And um, Kathy, I have a question for you. When uh, Faith and I were talking about your success equation, she was asking about my success equation. And one of the things I, I mentioned was very early in my career, I got some feedback that I wasn't detail oriented. And so from that point on, not only did I start to focus on it, but I started to talk about myself as a detail oriented person, right? As a way of reshaping sort of the, the way that people described who I, who I am. Um, are there things that you um, maybe identified earlier in your career, areas that you wanted to get better at or things that you know, maybe weren't a core strength early on, but maybe became a strength later on? Yeah, it's great, Greg. Uh, I would say uh, making the complex simple. I mean, we live in a very complicated world with so much evolving and emerging, a very divisive world. So kind of taking concepts, and again, in my prior life, which was a lot more technically complex around technology evolving and impacting you know, what, how Fortune 500 companies were, were evolving and serving their customers, um, so that, that would be the one where I worked really hard at becoming expertized in certain areas like derivative financial instruments is one of them. Most people, they're so complex, people don't take the time to learn and understand. And also listening. I mean, one of the things yeah. like when I first joined the league, remember, I didn't know anything about sports. I knew business. Um, I knew companies, big corporates, but I didn't know anything about sports. So, you know, I really went on this, you know, and it's not just cliche you know, 12 city listening tour. And for someone at my level that had been 33 years in business and successful and running a firm of 100,000 people, it's easy not to listen (laughs) and and think you know everything. But I was like, I I didn't know one player. I didn't know personally. uh, I didn't know the lawyers. I didn't know what a collective bargaining agreement would look like. I didn't know any of that. But 
I knew what my kind of core values were as we started to think about, you know, how to transform this league. And um, and that's what I was brought in to do. So I worked hard at that listening <laughs> uh, trait. I'll say that much. That's so fundamental. When you go when you go on a listening tour, did you did you kind of sit down and ask the same question in every place? Almost. And just say, yes. All, and what was that question? Virtually. You know, um, obviously, if it was it depends on the stakeholder, obviously, if it was the owners. You know, what are the owners looking for in their commissioner? What are they looking for me to transform? Where are the pain points? If it was the players, yes. Where are the pain points? Uh, and and how do they think that we can grow this league? What are their ideas? Uh, and then if it's the media, different questions. If it's uh, the referees, the officials, different questions. The fans, I met with fan groups in every market I went to and I would listen to the fans and why, why we had to transform how hard it is to be a fan of the WNBA. So I took a ton of notes yeah. uh, on that first 12 city tour um, and uh, continued to do that. Just got done that this year during our regular season and continue to, and, and the questions have evolved now from the fans and they've evolved from the media. And now we're talking about different things like globalizing the game and expansion and, you know, how uh, everybody in the ecosystem can value women's sports and the WNBA at a higher valuation. So it's working because, you know, it's kind of iterative a bit. And um, but we're evolving and we're evolving much more quickly than I thought we would, which I'm thrilled about. And the main reason, because the players are showing up on the court with the greatest level of women's basketball in the world. Yes. How how do you define what you do? It, would you say your job, your number one job is to advocate for the players? Or is it more that you're some kind of Im- impartial mediator between players and owners? How do you how do you figure that out? Yeah, I, I'd say the league uh, is the impartial, you know, the one impartial group. That's why you need leagues in professional sports, because they're the ones that, you know, aren't competing for the championship. But uh, but. You know, they want the best level of play, the most competitive level of play. Um, but when I came in, you know, Faith, maybe it's good to start there about what I think my job is. So I came in and my first question to the team was, what's our strategy? And they kind of looked at me like, what do you mean? I go, well, what's our strategy? And again, back to my making the complex simple. I said, we need a simple strategy. It has to play well with the players. It has to play well with the owners and all of our stakeholders. So we came up with three pillars, player first. So I am here as a commissioner to be player first. Think about the players. And when we embarked upon COVID and the bubble and George Floyd, it was like, okay, every decision we made had to be player first, stakeholder success. That's everybody, owners, media, fans, everybody. And then fan engagement, making it easier to be a fan. So we just came up. So that's my job is to be player first, uh, add to stakeholder success and make it easier to be a fan of the WNBA. When you became commissioner, your predecessor was called the president of the WNBA. And you are the commissioner. Was that your decision to change that language? It was not. That was Adam Silver called me after I had interviewed for the role. A lot of people we should think say who Adam Sil- Silver the is. The commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver, yeah. uh, had called me um, when we were wrapping up the interview process. And uh, he said, we're going to make you a commissioner. And I said, you know, Adam, you don't need to do that for me, but I think it's quite progressive. This was right when like the Me Too movement, everything I said, and such a, a, a socially progressive thing to do. And and he basically said to me, you know, major sports leagues have commissioners. The WNBA yeah. is a major sports league. You're a commissioner. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it does give you a seat at the table. And it does come with, uh, I think, added responsibility. Um, because it's important that people see the WNBA as this legitimate sports media and entertainment property. And, and, and that's where commissioners come in. And then little did we know we'd hit COVID and we're all these commissioners calls, which I would not have been on if I wasn't a commissioner. So there are, are things around the edges like wow. that, that um, I'm thankful and grateful for Adam, you know, thinking progressively around the title. You know, I basically am not a person that needs a big title. But in this case, I think it was important. I think it was important to the players because uh, we were uh, the players had opted out at the time of the collective bargaining agreement as it was their right to do. And so I think it actually played well um, that now they're negotiating with a commissioner who is saying she's very player first. And and that's why we were able to come to a successful groundbreaking agreement. Language matters. It matters. It matters. Look at that right on time. You know, I often think that the fact that there's an NBA and a WNBA 
you know, even on a subconscious level, and this happens with all sports that have, you know, like a, a female counterpart, it, it, it suggests that the National Basketball Association is the norm, and that's male, right? And then to, and then to have to add a W suggests that, you know, women are adjunct or, or, an, or an aberration. I, I, I mean, it's not something we can solve today, but, but do you know what I mean? I, I would actually turn it a little bit and say, do it. We share a brand with one of the most successful professional mm-hmm. sports league in the world. I mean, you look at the popularity of the NBA players and we share that brand and that's a huge advantage for us. So I know people get frustrated with thinking there's a bias here because it says WNBA, but you know, if we had W something else and, and if we didn't have the uh, ownership we've had and the investment we've had from the NBA for so many years, 26 seasons, um, we wouldn't even be, we wouldn't be the longest tenured women's professional uh, league in the world uh, or in the U.S. and double any other women's professional league in the U.S. So it shouldn't be lost on anyone that sharing that brand makes us stronger uh, and uh, I couldn't be more pleased with the commitment that Adam and Mark Tatum, who's the deputy commissioner, and uh, the whole organization really support the W in such an uh, incredible way. So I, I do, now that I work inside the same four walls as the NBA, uh, I get to see the huge advantages in, um, in the NBA, and I think we share the brand. And that's a really important lift for us. Uh, and I'm sure, Greg, you could talk about as you were negotiating, you know, becoming a WNBA change maker, you know, probably was important that you knew we had the backing of, you know, such a uh, an iconic league like the NBA. Absolutely. I mean, it, because you're joining, a, um, in addition, um, Kathy, to sort of the mothership brand of the NBA, you know, you're joining a community of other really powerful brands who've made the commitment to um, to sports and to women's sports in particular. Um, I think about the change maker companies who are part of uh, the WNBA, you know, U.S. Bank, along with uh, folks like Nike and um, uh, AT&T, um, Google, uh, Google and Deloitte, my old and, uh, and Deloitte. I was going to say your, your old stomping grounds. Like we, we've just had wonderful conversations and I really, I, I have to tell the story of faith. The first time I actually met Kathy, um, was in New York at, um, I think it was Google's offices. And, you know, Kathy and her team had uh, brought together all the change maker companies um, so that we could really sit down and talk about how we can support the vision that she and the, the team has for the WNBA. And it was the first time I had really been a part of something where all of these sponsors had sort of checked their logos at the door and said, mm-hmm. how do we collectively come together um, to support this incredible league, um, this league that is focused on not only women's basketball, not only on women's sports, um, but is really having conversations and, and leadership conversations around gender equity. And, you know, we all understand that we have a, a role to play. And, you know, U.S. Bank as the official bank of the WNBA is really helping to, you know, bring financial education and opportunities to uh, the players and the coaches, um, providing opportunities for mentorship um, internships down the road and, and other opportunities. And I think all of us are sort of leaning in in a way that we're bringing our core competency uh, competency to um, to the league and to this partnership in ways that I think are really going to be uh, helpful, not only for where the league is today, but where the league is going. And Greg, that, that was kind of like an aha moment for me when you all sat at that table and, um, you know, again, AT&T, Nike, Deloitte, Google, and U.S. Bank. And and just like like you said, check your logos at the door. And actually, like I, I think it was you and Google who said, like, we're not good at everything the W is like, we can't help the right. WNBA in every area, but here's where we think right. we can slot in. And you know, we're gonna put out an impact report of all of our change makers and how they impact uh the game, uh women's equality, um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. And there's such a uh, have become such a distinct part of our ecosystem now that, you know, and they can impact like Google's impacting the media side of things, you know, right. career development, U.S. Bank, financial literacy, U.S. Bank, mm-hmm. and and um, Deloitte's helping us transform our digital footprint. And uh, obviously Nike is helping us market the players and AT&T has their whole She's Connected series. And, um, you know, so, I mean, it was like kind of an aha moment for me to bring yeah. this this cohort group together who all share 
our values who are now you know, really advocating for the WNBAs outside, you know, even the partnership. So uh, it's really, it was really cool to see. And, um, and then I came out to Minneapolis and, uh, and yes. visited with, uh, with the U S bank leadership. And, you know, while I attended a, um, a Lynx game and that was, that was fun as well. Yeah. We, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, how exciting this season was on so many levels, but being here in Minneapolis and being a part of, um, you know, Seal's last ride, Sylvia Fowles, who um, we referenced earlier and uh, having this be her final season, um, having such an incredible impact. It was great to have you, Kathy, here in Minneapolis, but what a fun season it was to be here and, um, you know, for, for Sylvia's final season. And just, I was telling Faith, the quality of the play um, of the league is just so inspiring. My wife and I are just huge fans and we got to attend so many games this year. Um, right. And, and Minnesota thought I was bad luck for them, but they won that game. So <laughs> let, it, let, right. it, let it be known. I'm not bad luck for the home team. A lot of the home teams no, won no. this year. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, when you started your new role as commissioner, it was 2019 and you, you go on this listening tour and you stepped right into this very distinct call from your players about reform of salaries and benefits. So you initiated this this new collective bargaining agreement within your first six months on the job, which was then implemented at the top of 2020. I think I, I read that your motto at Deloitte was don't stand still. <laughs> so so you, you brought that with you to I the WNBA, not standing still. Um, I, I want our listeners to know, uh, Kathy is at a standing desk treadmill right now, running at the at top speed <laughs> not and, and, and shooting a few balls just while she's doing this podcast. Um, how... How did you earn the trust of the players you were advocating for to come to the final stipulations of that agreement? Do you think it started with the listening? It, it actually started four days on the job. So I was four days on the job and someone said, we booked you on a flight to Las Vegas. The WNBA All-Star Game is in Las Vegas that year in 2019, end of July, four days in, and you're going to go to your first collective bargaining meeting. So there was a meeting set and it was like, I didn't know one lawyer, one player, one owner, and there I am in a room, uh, in a conference room in Las Vegas at Mandalay Bay uh, with the start of the negotiation process. So, um, and that's where the listening came into effect phase. So I just like, I don't know any of these people. I haven't been able to build a relationship with anyone. And at Deloitte, it was all about relationships with your clients. So uh, so I said, I, I've got to do a lot of listening. And I, I I had already formed this kind of player first strategy in my head so that I, I knew and having been a division one college player, small D one, but a division one college player, I thought I pretty much knew kind of what their lives were like. And um, I, you know, and also having advocated, um, one of the reasons I took the job was uh, to have a broad women's empowerment platform. And so I just I knew what we needed to do. I knew we needed to do something progressive, bold. Uh, even if we didn't have the money today to fund it. And, um, you know, uh, and then, you know, then I am a huge um, uh, believer in do some small things of symbolic value, whenever you become a new leader uh, with your stakeholder mm. group. And then the big things, the hard things are easier to get done. So we did some small things the rest of the season um, that the players saw that, okay, she really is player first. Like, Really just as, something as simple as we, you know, we didn't have an economic model and still don't to charter all the time. But I did a charter flight when there was a west to east with essentially no days rest for the WNBA playoffs right. that season. And uh, again, it was was a little thing, but the players are like, oh, yeah, Kathy, she gets us. Um, mm -hmm. And then again, in the process of negotiating. Uh, the one thing I said to our lawyers, I said, I, the players need to be treated like they are professional working women in the workforce. And here's all the things we had at Deloitte for our male and female employees. And I had just put in a 16 week, very progressive family leave policy uh, for men and women for any family issue, not just um, having a baby. So, um, so I was like, you know, we're gonna go heavy on parental things, mother stuff, fertility, you know, we're going to go heavy on all of the benefits that professional working women get in their day jobs because that's the, they just have these players just happen to be the best at their craft in the world. Um, and so, you know, it uh, it wasn't easy. It was hard. There were important things to the owners. Uh, probably the owners were a little nervous on the funding of all this. But now we're in such a different place where we're talking about a lot of other things. We tripled the pay of the top player. 
top player can now make in their four and a half months or so with us if everything went well, $700,000. And I think it was probably a hundred and some when I first started. So not only did we triple the top uh, pay with bonuses, we're also putting over a million dollars of marketing into players, paying players to do marketing in the off season on behalf of the league. So we still have lots of things to transform, but I can't be more pleased three years later of how it's going. And it was all important to build the trust with the players. You're kind of rattling these off because uh, be- it, these are this is huge. This is huge. I mean, even backing up, talking about the healthcare support, that's uh, that's just massive. To, to in in the CBA, you you supported players with um, egg freezing. Yes. Right. Yes. It, with with fertility treatments. Yes. W- and then the the maternity leave and and the, and then you know when when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, you were right there with an announcement that the WNBA will support all healthcare travel and costs of of any woman who needs to go somewhere to take charge of her body. Yes. Yeah. Really important. Again. What women in the workforce get, these are professional working women. They happen to be professional athletes. They should get full maternity leave. They should get full benefits, fertility, motherhood benefits that I know I was a huge um, beneficiary of when I had my two kids. And then certainly, you know, when Roe v. Wade, uh, the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade came out, uh, that was very important as, again, the longest tenured women's professional sports league in the country for us to be viewed as leaders and to really speak out and knowing how strong our players' voices have been in very difficult topics, it was important that they see a league that's leading on that as well. It's interesting. I think that women athletes, I'm thinking especially of the WNBA and um, the U.S. women's soccer team, they a lot of these athletes speak so much more unapologetically and vociferously than male athletes. Than 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 the NFL, than the NBA, um, they they they, I feel like they're much more intrepid about their political stances. Yeah, and I, I think one of the reasons is, you know, they have fought for where they have gotten over so many years through, you know, again an ecosystem that undervalues them, and so I think they know that they now have worked so hard to build a platform. And in the WNBA, um, obviously, we're extremely diverse, 80% women of color. And I think they know that they are viewed as leaders. They're the role models. If we want more girls and boys of color to rise in uh, whatever they end up doing, if they're not an athlete, they realize, like, you can't be what you can't see and that they're these huge role models and have this strong voice and strong platform. So, yeah, and I think you see the admiration they get from other professional athletes because, they're so clear about their platform. And in 2020, you know, after George Floyd, Jacob Blake, when we launched our Social Justice Council of the WNBA, I mean, that was a leading uh, and these important societal and political issues in our society that the players each year now since, and I told everyone in 2020, I know enough, these players are all college graduates. They, um, they're really impressive. And the one thing I know is they're not one and done about anything they do. And and, yeah. you know, this year they're focused on, you know, civic engagement, how smart, given that, you know, the Roe v. Wade and other things, voting rights and things are, uh, it's, it's up to us all to be more civically engaged in what our state and local legislators are, what the values are, so that when we go to the vote, go to vote, we're vote, we know what we're voting for. We know how that's going to impact us in our community. So, again, so smart. I've been so impressed with that aspect. Last year it was you know, um, to advocate for health equity, uh, particularly in communities of color. That was a focus last year coming off the pandemic or still in the pandemic, I guess. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But think about that, like how smart they are. And they know they can't boil the ocean. They're picking things that are important to them personally in their communities with our fans and, and certainly in society. I, I want to return to the diversity in the league a little later Be- before because it's super important and illuminating. Before we get there, I just want to ask you to help me understand something. When we talk about equal pay for women basketball players compared to their male counterparts, we're talking about something relative. Is that correct? It's it's not that individual fem- you know women players are asking to be played at this point tens of millions of dollars like so many uh, NBA players. It, it's about 
receiving a portion of the league's revenue that's commensurate with their male counterparts? Yeah, no, I I think we have to step back a little bit and say, you know, we've been around, we just finished our 26th season. NFL has been over 100, the NHL over 100, MLB the same thing, and the NBA just celebrated their 75th season. So you have to look at where we are. We're only in 12 markets where we are 25, 26 years in. And, and actually, the biggest impediment to getting the things that get men's sports, what the, the type of benefits and pay is the undervaluation of women's sports. And last year, when the NCAA weight room uh, controversy occurred, I wrote an mm-hmm. op-ed called Beyond the Weight Room. And the important part of that it. op-ed is to point out to everybody, this isn't hard to figure out how you build an economic model for women's sports, but we can't, as the league, do it alone. And we can't just sit here and say, oh, we don't make what the NBA players or the NFL players. It's actually about building an economic model so you'll have a sustainable league for 50 to 100 years from now. And that's what we're doing. And with great partners like U.S. Bank and Greg and great advocates from all of our change makers and sponsors. Uh, but it is. But the, the, the remaining link to close the gap is media rights and you know, mm-hmm. corporate sponsorships. And, and as you look at this, less than 1% of all sponsorship dollars that go to sports go to women's sports, but we're, we're moving the needle on that. But where we're, where we've yet to move the needle is the less than 5% of all uh, coverage of yeah. sports is women's sports. And yet 40% of all athletes in the United States are women, female athletes. So you know, why is that? And we know 80% of every household consumer purchasing decision in the U.S. is made or influenced by a woman. And you look at our fan base, we skew more women, we skew younger, we skew more diverse and all of that. So um, so it's a big part of who we are and how we're going to grow and how we're already seeing our viewership and everything go up. But um, yeah, and your 2020 season saw 68% increase in viewership, right. which is astonishing. Kathy, I've heard you use the word narrative a lot when you talk. And it sounds like, I mean, first of all, narratives, that's storytelling. That's my love language. I think it's yours too, right, Greg? We love narratives around here. I think what's embedded in a a lot of the change that has to happen with our recognition and attitudes about women's sports, right? There's not just a huge con- compensation gap. There's there's a media gap. There's an appreciation gap. Can mm-hmm. you talk about how changing narratives and introducing stories can change the N- WNBA and our culture? Right, uh, absolutely. So it's the media gap that drives the pay gap, by the way. So yeah. And yeah. it's the undervaluation of our assets, whether it's a placement on the court, a media ad buy, you know, obviously a game on broadcast. And we're, again, we're proving with the help of our change makers that the more you show, it's the old adage in baseball uh, as part of, I think, Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. I mean, you look at the viewership we've had just here in the playoffs and, you know, almost a million average viewers watching, you know, the Aces Storm game last Sunday uh, for game two of the WNBA semifinals. And, and we're even doing really well with the other series, even though we don't necessarily have the best windows and things like that for that one. So, mm-hmm. so again, it's all about getting the valuation, changing the valuation model that's based on decades old spreadsheets that are biased against a women's league, women's teams, female athletes. And so I, I think, uh, and- but back to your narrative, if you could cobble that narrative together and, and have it be data-based, so one of the things we're seeing, our viewership is higher than some of the men's leagues like MLS, yet their media rights are 18 times ours. And if our view, so even if, you use, even if you use the decades old spreadsheet that's just based on eyeballs on the game, we're still in excess of that and we're still undervalued. So, so that is my job to change. When you've mentioned narratives, I have also heard you talk about focusing on these women's stories, creating more hype around rivalries, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. there's 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 nothing that compares to, you know, whatever Red Sox versus Yankees. You you want this for these women. You know, when when people are asked to name an amazing female athlete, the fact that everybody can talk about Serena Williams is the exception that proves a rule. Yes. We should know more yeah. about Sue Bird yes. or yeah. Asia or, Wilson, John Quell Jones. Yeah. yeah. So content is king, as we all know, and mm-hmm. short form, medium form and long form now. And so a lot of that storytelling, Faith, as you mentioned, is we're ramping up our marketing. We we're able to uh, uh, do a capital raise in February of this year 
to get some capital so that we can invest in that storytelling, we can invest in marketing, uh, and it's paying off. But content is king. You have to have these rivalries. And I'm a big studier of history and especially the MBA, given my father's roots there. And and you look at, you know, the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson era. And prior to that, like the MBA was on tape delay. And then this big rivalry coming out of the college ranks into the pros. And then thereafter, it was like Michael Jordan and then Shaq, Kobe, obviously LeBron today, Steph. So, I mean, you kind of look at that, but that was 40 to 50 years in. And we're 25 to 26 years in. So, but the the media landscape's changing enormously with streamers and content. And um, you look at the, the F1 drive to survive. I just watched one of the hard knocks on the Detroit Lions training camp. And so we have a lot of interest in WNBA content uh, outside of even the, the live game on the on the court. So those are all the things we'll be investing in so we can tell the better narratives so we can build these household names and these rivalries. Kathy, you mentioned that over 80% of the players are women of color and 67% of them are black. And also a substantial number of the WNBA players identify as LGBTQ. What has been your experience as a white leader of a largely black league? Have there been, you've done a lot of listening. Have there been questions you've asked yourself as you, as you put players first? Yeah, the one thing with such great training at Deloitte, who was viewed as a leader around diversity, equity, inclusion, is is to look at your unconscious biases. Um, to uh, you know, right as I was kind of retiring from Deloitte, we put out the inclusive leadership behaviors, which were very much on you know being you know kind of culturally aware of what these biases are. We used to do trainings where the whole firm would would get together. You know, pre-COVID, of course, when it was a lot easier to do that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, I, but also listening has been a big part. And I'll tell you a quick story about when we were in the WNBA bubble for 90, you know, two straight days in at IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida, with the players who were carrying this enormously heavy burden as women, as women of color, um, and obviously with everything going on in our country at the time, and how important it was that the hair. You know, was the, he going to say the hair? Yeah, the, 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 hair? the hair, you know, making sure <laughs> we had, we had, you know, people who could come yeah. in after quarantining and giving up their businesses to come in and, yeah. and do hair, which obviously was important to the players. But also just the, the night of Jacob Blake, I'll never forget it. When I walked into the arena, we had four games on national networks that night. I really wanted to play faith. And I was like, we're, we're playing. And I walked mm. into the arena and it was like a funeral was going on. And the players on the first game were out on the court in a huddle crying and mm. just the emotion. And the coaches were kind of like, Kathy, go out there and figure out whether we're playing tonight. So I, I like walked on the court, but stayed kind of in the back, back of the huddle and talked to a few players on the side. Neka Gumake, who wasn't playing in that particular game, but was playing later in the night, who's the head of the Players Association. And she's amazing. You know, she and I were chatting, um, but I did walk in with a bias. We're playing tonight. And um, and then there was a player who had, we let our players who had children bring them into the bubble. And there was a player who had a five-year-old, six-year-old son who for, I'll never forget, for Washington at the time. And she turned to me and she said, Kathy, in 10 years, this could have been my son. And I was like... (sighs) stunned by, okay, I need to walk in her shoes. I need to listen more. And I walked away and said, we're not playing a game tonight. And the players went back, had a candlelight vigil, you know, which is very inspiring for all of them and for us. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, again, it's important to, you know, kind of see the burden that these players carry in society and make sure that you're providing an environment that they know they're welcome. They know they're included. I think we're the most inclusive league in sports and that we're going to advocate for them uh, no matter who they are, and they can authentically bring their full selves to the WNBA. And I think the W has been known for that well before I got here, but that period of time and that burden they took on, I don't think a lot of people know, like when they speak out, like that's a a heavy burden on them and it's mentally taxing and we're here to support them in any way we can. That's an incredibly powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. I still get chills when I, like, I just got chills. Did I tell that story because it was so real? I, I didn't want to interrupt, but I just got chills. It's so powerful. And Greg, there's that word burden that we that we've talked about over several seasons, right? Um, the undue burden that, that you carry with you, and and not only having to perform on the court, but 
you know, so much of what you represent um, as an athlete or as an executive, as a as a person of color, it it, it often goes um, unnoticed. And I, kudos to you, Kathy, for your leadership during that time. And I just remember the images of the players. Um, I just there were so many images of them in tears, and you could just see how emotionally impacted. Uh, they were by the J- Jacob Blake and so many other uh, social issues that were happening. Right, and Greg, I wasn't sure after that night whether they'd ever come back and play. Honestly, yeah. I was like, we were preparing. I don't like, think they were either. I don't I, I, they right, either. they yeah. took the next day off as well when we had yeah. games for a day of reflection, which, again, NECA led that player group. They had a player-only meeting that I only saw yeah. after, after the fact when ESPN had a documentary on our time in the bubble, and I'm like, Wow, I never knew that stuff happened. I never knew who stepped up in the meeting with courage to say, like, I want to play or I don't want to play. And and there were players on each side of that. So it was it was really interesting. And remember, there was also this pandemic where people were dying everywhere um, trauma, at the same time. Trauma. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was kind of a really interesting time that the players stepped up and, you know, essentially saved the league for the future. Yeah, that truly is putting players first, Kathy. Did the what do the yeah. players call you? Did they call you commission? Some call me commish. Some call me commissioner. And most, I say, just call me Kathy. <laughs> I, I, I do think it's funny now. Like we just are going through our award season, so they'll get it. Always text them first and say, you know, oh, do you have a few minutes? And during the season, though, that's usually not a good thing because it's maybe about a disciplinary action. <laughs> but at the, after the season, they know the principal's calling. Right, they know I'm calling with good news typically about an award. So obviously, I just delivered the great news to Asia Wilson about MVP. And it was a very close race with Rihanna Stewart, who's, you know, one of the greatest players in the world also. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, building these rivalries between players like and really the changing of the guard faith. One thing that I find really interesting and kind of hit me this season with Sylvia and Sue and Brianne January and others like towards the end of their career, we have this great changing of the guard going on with younger players like Asian Stewie and um, Mm -hmm. Kelsey Plum and um, Mm -hmm. so many others that are evolving um, this year's uh, Rookie of the Year, Ryan Howard, and so many younger players and a great crop coming into the WNBA from the NCAA game coming up in the next few years. So, you know, the the you know, we're we're like going to miss Sue and Sylvia and Brianne and everyone else so much when they retire. But the league is in a, coming from a, a position of strength now. And again, it's because of the players courage and and, you know, what they're doing on the court and and, and off the court a little bit, too. Right, Kathy, because I think. You know, social media, you know, 20 years ago, and we didn't have social media. The first time you were sort of introduced to a, a number of these players was once they hit the league. Yes. And, you know, now these players are coming into the league as with their own brands and they've got clothing lines and like their and social millions media of followers. Pro- yeah. And millions yeah. of followers. And yeah. so I, I feel like we all know them better once they hit the league at this point. That's narrative. That's what's so yeah. Yeah. And Greg and Greg and Faith, one of the things I, you know, when I first came into the league, the nil, the name image likeness of the NCAA yeah. was just coming out. And I know there's a lot of people criticizing it, but my initial reaction was, um, and again, this was a bias I had oh, just another area for female athletes to be undervalued. Yeah. And you know what happened? I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, female athletes are being valued, especially basketball players because of the popularity of the women's game. And I think last year in the lead eight of the men and women's tournaments, four of the top five nil athletes were female basketball players. How about that? And I think if you even look in the top 10 of all nil athletes, there's a couple of football players ahead, but there's more women basketball players in the top 10 than, than anyone else. So, I mean, it's, I, I was, I was wrong about that and we'll see how it plays out, but we love now that players are going to come into our league with a brand, with followership. We have to, we, that now the responsibility is on us to make sure we integrate that from the NCAA to the WNBA so they don't wallow in anonymity in a market where they're not getting that followership. So, so my, my team is, uh, we're already on that and working on that. It's something I said since the day I came in the league and now we have a huge opportunity. You just said I was wrong with a smile on your face. And <laughs> truly, that's a mark of a great leader. My, my family would say, oh, my gosh, mom actually said she was wrong. But, yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> you know, Kathy. Uh, Doesn't happen often, though, does it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Greg knows I like a big high five for for a well, uh, well-played well sports metaphor. So I think 
I think I have to say we've run out the clock, which is which is so. I, I, this has been such an incredible conversation. I, I I'm so grateful for your time in the middle of the semifinals. Yes. yes. Um, well, we're grateful to you for doing this, and Greg, the partnership with U.S. Bank is is just taking us to a, a big, a higher level. And Greg and his ideas and his team around community connection is such a part of the DNA of the WNBA. And that's why this partnership has already been off to such a great start. And I have heard that the easiest way to invest in the WNBA for everyone is to simply show up at a game. Buy a ticket. Buy a ticket to a game. Yes, season ticket. How about a season Buy ticket? A season ticket to a game. <laughs> Kathy, I want you to know that as as I was preparing for this, my eight year old daughter and ten year old son said, "I want to go. I want to go." And it was for it was my aha moment. It was like, of yes. course we should go. We got we got the liberty. Yes, few miles away. Few miles away. Yes. They, they had a great season. Made the playoffs. Lost in a deciding game three versus Chicago. They took Chicago it was yeah. a great environment at Barclays. Um, you know the ownership there is really committed in building a great fan base. But yeah, in all twelve of our markets, you know we do need fans to know that we're in that market. We need the marketing around that, both locally and regionally and nationally. And we do need to expand to more than 12 cities. When you're, again, the longest tenured women's professional sports league, you need to be more than, than more than 12 cities in a country with 330 plus million people. So that's what we're working on. Uh, you're taking those steps. You you announced that this this summer that you were expanding the games, right? Yes. It's going from 36 to 40. Yep, we'll have the highest so, number of games next year. So we want more basketball. We want it more nationally shown and globally. We're, you know, we were on in India for the first time this year. 7 million people watched WNBA games in India. So, you know, just uh, we're chipping away at, at broadening kind of the exposure to the game and to these amazing players. And again, with help from U.S. Bank and others, it's it's really, we're off to a great start. Kathy Engelbert, commish, if I may, um, <laughs> thank you for standing still with us just for a few minutes. Yes, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for listening to another episode of Real Good. If you like what you heard, subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon.